0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offers. This week I'm going to recommend Japan's Story, In Search of a Nation, 1850 to the Present, by Christopher Harding. This is a cultural history by a historian in Scotland about the people who saw Japan's modernization not as a step forward, but as a step back, as a terrible and soul-crushing calamity. It's an absolutely fascinating premise for a work of history, after all what is more quintessential in Japan's modern history than the struggle between modernity and tradition? You can check it out for yourself, just go to audibletrial.com/japan to claim your offer. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 271. You're going on the list. This week, it's time for us to take a look at the other side of the Heian era's most famous literary duo. Last week, we covered Murasaki Shikibu. This week, it's time to cover someone with similar social status but radically different personality, Sei Shonagon. Much as was the case with Murasaki Shikibu, there's an astonishing amount we do not know about Sei Shonagon, particularly considering how famous she is. As we discussed last week, it was not the custom to refer to court ladies by their given names. Doing so would have been extremely overfamiliar. Instead, women were known by an assumed name, usually some reference to their father's family, plus a title associated with a close male relative. So, for example, Murasaki Shikibu is a name derived first from Murasaki, the word for purple, as in the purple Fuji or wisteria, as in Fujiwara, her father's clan. Shikibu comes from the Shikibu Shô, the Ministry of Ceremonial Affairs, where her father was employed. Sei Shōnagon works the same way. She came from the Kiyohara clan, and in Japanese, the character for Kiyo can also be read as Sei. Shōnagon, roughly translated as Lesser State Counselor, was a posting in the Heian government. Now, Sei Shōnagon was born sometime in the 960s. 966 is the most commonly given date making her slightly older than Murasaki Shikibu, who you'll recall was born in the 970s. She was born into the Kiyohara clan, a respectable and powerful family of Kuge aristocrats with an established place at court, not as strong as the Fujiwara but highly respectable, and a strong power base in northern Japan, where some branches of the family were intermarrying with the newly arisen samurai class. Her father was Kiyohara no Motosuke, who had a respectable career as a member of the Heian government. He did a stint as the governor of Kawachi province, now part of Osaka prefecture, and Higo province in western Kyushu, what's now Kumamoto prefecture. In the complex system of courtly ranks employed in the Heian government, he made it to the respectable position of junior fifth rank upper grade, Jugoi no jo in Japanese. That rank is, if you're curious, about two-thirds of the way up the chart, so hey, not bad at all. However, far more than his political service, Kiyohara no Motosuke is remembered for his poetry. Long after his death, one of his poems was included in the famous Ogura Hyakunin Isshu, compiled by the legendary poet Fujiwara no Teika. And since Teika's Hyakunin Isshu is one of the most famous poetry compendiums in Japanese history, you could actually argue the most famous, That's not bad at all. If you've heard of Utagaruta, the card game where people try to match part of a poem with the whole, the poems that are used to play that game are from the Hyakunin Isshu. Kiyohara no Motosuke was also tapped to co-edit an imperial anthology of poetry, the Gosen Wakashu, alongside the other major poets of his day. When an admired poet of the time, Fujiwara no Kinto, decided to compile a list of the 36 greatest poets in Japanese history the 36 Immortals of Japanese Poetry, he called it, Kiyohara no Motosuke was included on that list. So yeah, that's one hell of a literary pedigree for your dad to have. Unfortunately, much like Murasaki Shikibu, there's very little I can tell you about the young life of Sei Shonagon. We do know that, like Murasaki Shikibu, she picked up a facility with classical Chinese, which was uncommon for a woman in the aristocracy to do. Unlike Murasaki, who, you'll remember, learned it alongside her brother as he prepared to work in the imperial government, we're not really sure how Sei Shonagon picked the language up. Also, like Murasaki, we do have a guess for her actual given name, Kiyohara no Nagiko, though that guess is grounded far more in tradition than in actual historical research. We don't even actually know how Shonagon became the personal name that she took on at court, Usually that name would come from a position held by a close male relative, but neither her father nor her husband ever held that title. What I can tell you is that, by the standards of a Kuge family, Shonagon grew up somewhat poor. Now, I want to emphasize the by the standards of a Kuge family bit because this is not exactly life on the mean streets of heian that we're talking about here. Simply put, her father's poetry, well highly regarded, didn't exactly make the big bucks. The positions that he held in the imperial bureaucracy either generated very little money or had no stipend attached to them at all, which would not be a problem for other aristocratic families, but her branch of the Kiyohara did not have as much in terms of pre-existing assets as, say, the fancier branches of the Fujiwara clan. So her family had some financial difficulties keeping up with the proverbial Joneses, or I guess the proverbial Minamotos. Though we don't have anything to back this up, I'd venture a guess that this is why her father was willing to take a posting for a governorship in a godforsaken place like Higo out on Kyushu. Kyushu was a place people were exiled to in the 900s, not really a place you went to if you were looking to advance your political career, but beggars cannot be choosers, as they say we also know that Sei Shonagan had a son with a member of the Tachibana clan, Tachibana no Norimitsu, the Tachibana being yet another of the distinguished Kuge families of Old Heian, and, confusingly, not at all related to the later Tachibana clan of the Samurai era, because of course they're not related, that would be way too easy. Anyway, Sei Shonagan's son, Tachibana no Norinaga, was born in 982, and his parents were probably married when he was born, though we cannot be 100% certain because, again, confusing and incomplete sources. Sometimes, for example, the two parents are described as being as close as brother and sister, other times as actual husband and wife. They had a kid, so who knows, I guess. Either way, the father of her child, Norimitsu, had a fairly distinguished career, with a series of postings in Heian combined with four separate provincial governorships. He also, by the by, makes a surprise appearance in the Konjaku Monogatari-shu, or Collections of Tales from the Past. In the story, he's going out to meet a woman, as heian Menzo so often did, and is ambushed by three ruffians, who he cleverly dispatches by catching one off-guard and then baiting the other two into chasing after him and picking them off one at a time. When word gets out that three people are dead in the street the next day, Norimitsu is dragged by his friends to go see the bodies, and is very grateful when another man, looking to boost his own reputation, claims credit for the feat of daring swordsmanship, since Norimitsu does not want the attention that would come with claiming the feat for himself. Norimitsu is also described in Seishonagon's own writing, which we will of course get to in more detail as a charming and witty man, though not one without faults. For example, she records one story about being so overwhelmed by life at the imperial court that she chose, essentially, to go on a staycation without telling anybody where she was. The only ones she told were some close friends and Tachibana no Norimitsu. But then, of course, the people who want to find her and annoy her it is unclear exactly how, but apparently she was quite popular, know how close she is to Norimitsu, and so one of them, a holder of the rank of Chunagon, or middle counselor, tries to corner Norimitsu and make him say where Seishonagon is. Norimitsu, trying to lie but realizing that he's about to give away what he knows by laughing or smiling or something, thinks fast and simply stuffs a bunch of seaweed into his mouth so that he cannot talk at all. But of course, the persistent Chunagon continues to pester Norimitsu, who eventually sends a letter to Seishonagon asking for advice. Look, should I just tell him or whatever? Clearly, he really wants to talk to you. Her response was to mail him back nothing but a piece of seaweed. Apparently, he did not find the joke as funny as she did. In her recollections, he didn't get the joke at all, and simply became annoyed that she had not really responded to his serious question, which led to the two of them eventually falling out. Overall, the impression of Norimitsu that I get, and this is just me, is of a stalwart man who means well but is just not as clever as she is, which perhaps explains why, when given a chance to move into some higher circles of her own and shine more in her own right, Seishonagon took it. And here's where we get into some fun Heian court politics that will be a wee bit confusing in that everyone has the same last name and somewhat similar-sounding first names. We talked a little bit about this last week, but... Currently, we are in the reign of Emperor Ichijo, by the traditional rendering, the 66th Emperor of Japan, who ascended to the throne in 986 after the previous emperor, a cousin of his, abdicated the throne after two years, which was common practice, remember, being the emperor was an exhausting, ritual-heavy job with heavily limited actual power, so it was not uncommon to serve for a bit, do your time, so to speak, and then abdicate. Ichijo was also the grandson of a Fujiwara, Fujiwara no Kaneie, who had successfully married off a daughter to a previous emperor and whose grandson was now on the throne. Unfortunately for Fujiwara no Kaneie, he did not live long to enjoy his triumph. He died in 990. However, he did have 3 sons who lived to adulthood: Michitaka, Michikane, and Michinaga. After Kaneie died, Eldest son Michitaka, who, for those of you keeping track at home, was also Emperor Ichijo's uncle, became the emperor's kampaku, his regent, who exercised most of the real power of state in the emperor's name. Michitaka further cemented his hold over his nephew in the classic Fujiwara method. He had the emperor marry his daughter, who was, for those of you keeping track at home, the emperor's cousin. This girl became the empress Teishi. In 993, Seishonagon was invited to court to be one of the ladies-in-waiting for Empress Teishi, an offer she happily accepted. However, her time at court proved more eventful than I think she planned for, because Fujiwara no Michitaka proved not terribly long for this world. He died in 995, at which point middle brother Michikane left his first job as a Buddhist priest and came to assume the regency, and then died seven days later, and so the youngest brother, Michinaga, took the job, and fortunately for all involved, I guess he ate his veggies or something, because he lived until 1028. Michinaga, just like his eldest brother had, wanted to get his hooks into the emperor, and so he took a page out of Dear Elder Brother's playbook, and made the emperor marry one of his daughters too, and again, this means the emperor is married to two different cousins of his. Strictly speaking, this kind of thing was not kosher. The emperor was supposed to have only one empress, though he could have concubines galore. However, Michinaga used some legal chicanery, eventually creating a new term for empress, to make the whole thing work. See, there are two different job titles at play here, so it's totally fine. For our purposes, what matters less is these marriages themselves, though the whole thing is very Game of Thronesy in a sexy politics way, and more the fact of the dynamic they created. This new empress, Shōshi needed women of talent to form her own inner circle of ladies-in-waiting, and who should she hit upon but Murasaki Shikibu? Thus, Shōnagon's relationship with Murasaki Shikibu was not only one of literary rivalry, but a more broad rivalry. They were attendants to competing empresses. Not that the two really needed a reason to dislike each other. For reference, Here is Murasaki Shikibu's take on Sei Shonagon, direct from Murasaki's own diary. Quote, Sei Shonagon has the most extraordinary air of self-satisfaction. Yet if we stop to examine those Chinese writings that she so presumptuously scatters about the place, we find they are full of imperfections. Someone who makes such an effort to be different from others is bound to fall in people's esteem, and I can only think her future will be a hard one. She is a gifted woman, to be sure. Yet, if one gives free rein to one's emotions, even under the most inappropriate circumstances, if one has to sample each interesting thing that one comes along, people are bound to regard that person as frivolous. And how can things turn out well for such a woman? Unquote. If you are wondering, we do not have anything in the reverse from Seishonagon about what she thought of Murasaki Shigibu, If I had to guess, I'd say the feeling was probably mutual. At its core, the antipathy between the two of them seems to have grown out of their very different personalities, combined with their competing stations at court, on the courts of Empress Teishi and Empress Shoshi. If you'll recall from last week, Murasaki was quiet, reserved, preferred a degree of solitude, and did not like to show off. She would not even use classical Chinese at court, except at the request of her empress, although she had a good command of the language. After all, Chinese was not ladylike. Meanwhile, Seishonagon was outgoing, charming, witty, biting in her humor and sarcasm, seemed to enjoy being the center of attention, and was not at all afraid to show off her skills, including skills like Chinese that only men were supposed to have. They were just two very different people, so a degree of dislike between them seems kind of natural. Now that we've done all this scene setting, I suppose you're wondering, if Sei Shonagan is such a great writer that she deserves to be mentioned in the same sentence as Murasaki Shikibu, well, what did she actually write? The answer, my friend, is one of the very few things I read in my undergraduate Japanese Lit course, by the way, shout out to Dr. Terry Kawashima, that class was awesome, which actually made me laugh out loud when I read it for homework. The Makuro no Soshi, or Pillow Book. The Pillow Book is definitely not a novel. It's non-fiction, a collection of musings, essays, lists, anecdotes of court life, whatever else Shonagon felt like writing down. What really makes it stand out is the wit, humor, and charm with which these things were recorded, so much so that even in translation, 1,000 years after the fact, a college student on the other side of the world can still find himself thoroughly charmed. And I'm not alone in that fact, no less an authority than Arthur Whaley, one of the first Japanese-to-English translators ever, wrote that Seishonagon was quote, incomparably the best poet of her time, unquote. Which, don't let Murasaki Shikibu hear you say that. Strictly speaking, Makaruno no soshi is usually grouped into the genre of Zuihitsu, literally wandering brush. These are collections of meandering, poetic musings that were very popular and common in the late Heian and early medieval Japanese periods. Many of the later authors of Zuihitsu are actually attempting to imitate Seishonagan, but most of the other entrants in this genre are far more dour. One of the other famous Zuihitsu, Kamono Chome's Choumei's is this gloomy collection of disaster stories advancing the idea that the world is becoming decadent and being punished by heaven, which, whatever Grandpa, yawn. According to Sei Shonagon herself, the idea for the text came out of a fortuitous accident. Over in the male wing of the palace, the emperor had commissioned a new copy of the venerated Shurji, Sima Qian's Records of the Grand Historian the first great work of written history in the Chinese literary tradition, commissioned about 1,000 years before Sei Shonagon was born. As a result, the palace had some extra paper lying around. Paper being expensive and valuable, some of it was gifted to the empress. I'll let Sei Shonagon take it from here in her own words. Quote, "'What do you think we should write on this?' Her Majesty inquired. "'This should be a pillow,' I suggested." "'Very well, it's yours,' declared Her Majesty, and she handed it over to me. "'I set to work with this boundless pile of paper to fill it up to the last sheet "'with all manner of odd things, so no doubt there's much in these pages that makes no sense. "'Overall, I have chosen to write about the things that delight or that people find impressive, "'including poems as well as things such as trees, plants, birds, insects, and so forth. "'And for this reason, people may criticize it for not living up to expectations,' and only going to prove the limits of my sensibility." If you're wondering what the hell does this should be a pillow mean, well, it's an example of one of those classic staples of Japanese humor, the kanji pun. The Japanese reading for the records of the Grand Historian is shiki, which is a homophone for the word bedding. Now, according to Sei Shonagan, this was supposed to be her private list of musings and not really for public consumption. She would later write in the Pillow book that she was, quote, "...upset that people have seen these pages," unquote. But that, if you will pardon the highly complex literary terminology, is complete crap. It seems fairly obvious to me that she wanted people to see the book. For example, she claimed to be very upset that she just so happened to leave her writing in plain sight in her home while away on a trip, and it just so happened that a friend of hers happened to pop by and find it lying there, and just so happened to read it, and just so happened to find it funny and take it with them and read it more, and read it with other people, and read it to other people, and oh no, woe is me, my secret work is out there. Sure. In all likelihood, the work was always intended to be consumed publicly as a demonstration of Seishonagon's wit and intellect marking her out as special and, by association, marking the court of Empress Teishi as unusually cultivated. But this is not really a book about Teishi, really, though Teishi does make appearances and is described in very kind terms. In its essence, The Pillow Book is a story about Seishonagon and about her way of viewing the world. There's no real organizational structure to it. The text jumps around both stylistically from lists to poetry to prose and chronologically, though that may be a function of the fact that the oldest versions we have are from 200 years after the Pillow Book was finished, and so things may have gotten a bit jumbled in the passing along. Even without a clear organizational framework, the text gets across what it needs to get across, Sei Shonagon's strong personality, her wit, her charm, and, less flatteringly, her self-regard and casual elitism. Now, since, unlike Genji, there's not really a plot I can summarize for you, I think the best thing I can do is simply provide you a few choice moments from the text. So, for example, here is her description of the ideal lover. Quote, A good lover will behave as elegantly at dawn as at any other time. He drags himself out of bed with a look of dismay on his face. The lady urges him on. Come, my friend, it's getting light. You don't want anyone to find you here. He gives a deep sigh as if to say the night has not been nearly long enough and that it is agony to leave. Once up, he does not instantly pull on his trousers. Instead, he comes close to the lady and whispers whatever was left unsaid during the night. Even when he is dressed, he still lingers, vaguely pretending to be fastening his sash. Presently he raises the lattice and the two lovers stand together by the side door while he tells her how he dreads the coming day, which will keep them apart and then he slips away. The lady watches him go, and this moment of parting will remain among her most charming memories. Indeed, one's attachment to a man depends largely on the elegance of his leave-taking. When he jumps out of bed, scurries about the room, tightly fashions his trouser sash, rolls up the sleeves of his court cloak, overrobe, or hunting costume, stuffs his belongings into the breast of his robe, and then briskly secures the outer sash, one really begins to hate him." Sometimes she would simply describe the beauty of the natural world around her. Quote, I remember a clear morning in the ninth month when it had been raining all night. Despite the bright sun, the dew was still dripping from the chrysanthemums in the garden. On the bamboo fences and crisscross hedges I saw tatters of spiderwebs, and where the threads were broken, the raindrops hung on them like strings of white pearls. I was greatly moved and delighted. As it became sunnier... The dew gradually vanished from the clover and the other plants where it had lain so heavily. The branches began to stir, then suddenly sprang up of their own accord. Later I described to people how beautiful it was. What most impressed me was that they were not at all impressed. Sometimes the beauty of nature gave Seishonagana a chance to do one of her favorite things, demonstrate her own wittiness. It was a clear moonlit night a little after the tenth of the eighth month. Her Majesty, who was residing in the Empress's office, sat by the edges of the veranda while Ukon no Naishi played the flute to her. The other ladies in attendance sat together, talking and laughing, but I stayed by myself, leaning against one of the pillars between the main hall and the veranda. Why so silent, said Her Majesty. Say something, it is sad that you do not speak. I am gazing into the autumn moon, I replied. Ah yes, she remarked, that is just what you should have said. Now, these longer moments of prose are certainly interesting and give a lot of insight into, say, Shonagan and her world and how she viewed the people around her, but nothing in the Pillow Book is more famous than its lists. They are, for my money, and I don't think I'm the only one, where her wit truly shines and where you can really see her personality more clearly than anywhere else. Here, for example, is a list of infuriating things. Quote, A guest who arrives when you have something urgent to do, and stays talking for ages. If it's someone you don't have much respect for, you can simply send them away and tell them to come back later. But if it's a person with whom you feel you must stand on some ceremony, it's an infuriating situation. A hair that has got onto your inkstone, and you find yourself grinding it in with the inkstick. The grating sound when a bit of stone gets ground in with the ink a very ordinary person who beams inanely as she prattles on and on, a baby who cries when you're trying to hear something, a flock of crows clamoring raucously, all flying around chaotically with noisily flapping wings, a dog that discovers a clandestine lover as he comes creeping in and barks at him. I hate it when, either at home or at the palace, someone comes calling whom you'd rather not see, and you pretend to be asleep, but then a well-meaning member of the household comes along and shakes you awake, with a look of disapproval at you for dozing off. A man you've had to conceal in some unsatisfactory hiding place, who then begins to snore. And then there's this gem, quote, a man who has nothing in particular to recommend him, but discusses all sorts of subjects at random, as though he knew everything. And here is a list of unsuitable things. Quote, a woman with ugly hair wearing a robe of white damask ugly handwriting on red paper. Snow on the house of common people. This is especially regrettable when the moonlight shines down on it. It is unpleasant to see a woman of a certain age with a young husband. It is most unsuitable when she becomes jealous of him because he has gone to visit someone else. A handsome man with an ugly wife. Here is a pleasing thing I particularly identify with. Finding a large number of tales that one has not read before or acquiring the second volume of a tale whose first volume one has enjoyed. But, often, this is a great disappointment. And then there's observations like this, quote, When I make myself imagine what it is like to be one of those women who live at home, faithfully serving their husbands, women who have not a single exciting prospect in life, yet who believe they are perfectly happy, I am filled with scorn. Or this, quote, A preacher ought to be good-looking, for if we are properly to understand his worthy sentiments, we must keep our eyes on him while he speaks. Of course, The Pillow Book does, for a modern and especially non-Japanese reader, present some challenges to entry The Tale of Genji just does not. The basic narrative framework of The Tale of Genji is easier to follow in that it, you know, exists. It is a story where The Pillow Book is a series of anecdotes and anecdotes told out of order. It's very hard to follow unless you have someone you can ask questions to, or a good annotated version or just an encyclopedic knowledge of 11th century Kyoto politics and culture. But if you're prepared to get some of those things, by my recollection the Penguin Classics translation by Meredith McKinney is quite good, then it's a joy to really look across a gulf of 1,000 years and see the personality of this very funny woman and be charmed by her. As to what happened to Sei Shonagon after she wrote the Pillow Book, yet again, we do not know. As with Murasaki Shikibu, even the date of her death is unclear. She vanishes from the historical record after 1017. We know that she served Empress Teishi until Teishi died in childbirth in 1001, and that she hung around court after that. Beyond that, all we have are some traditional stories that have been passed down. One of those stories says that Shonagon died alone and penniless as a nun in a Buddhist monastery. This, to my mind, reads as a bit of a slander. It's something of a trope in the Japanese literary tradition, which was, after all, dominated by men, to have women who lived frivolous lives, that is, lives focused on anything other than religion and child-rearing, be karmically punished with a hard existence culminating in repentance in a monastery. You see comic writers like Ihara Saikaku make fun of this trope hundreds of years later with works like Life of an Amorous Woman. So this story reads to me as later men saying, oh, that Seishonagon, what a troublemaker, she got what she deserved. Other traditions have her remarrying to a Fujiwara, Fujiwara no Muneo, governor of Setsu, a very prized position very close to Heian itself. The two then supposedly had a daughter, Koma no Miobu who became a recognized poet in her own right. This reads to me as more likely, but that's pure inference by a non-expert in the period, so take it with as many grains of salt as you feel are appropriate. One way or another, Sei Shonagon finally died sometime between 1017 and 1025, making her somewhere in her 50s or 60s, depending on which set of birth and death dates you use. However, her influence lived on far past her own life. Her effortless style and charm have been imitated by many authors since, though I don't think any of them are nearly as good. Incidentally, Sei Shonagon also got a poem into the Ogura Hyakunin issue, like both her father and actually Murasaki Shikibu. Her poem is quite funny, as befits her style, mocking a lover of hers who claimed to have snuck back into town after a night together by imitating a rooster outside the city gates thus convincing the gate guards it was time to open things up for the day. Her response to this story was Yo Okomete Soranewa Hakarutomo Sekiwa Yurusaji. The roosters crowing in the middle of the night deceived the hearers, but at Osaka's gateway the guards are never fooled. Like the tale of Genji, the Pillow Book is sometimes assigned in secondary schools as part of the national literary curriculum in Japan, Together, Murasaki Shikibu and Sei Shonagon are held up as the pinnacles of Heian-era literature, a fact that would have scandalized the men of the time who viewed anything written in Japanese as being not worthwhile compared to Chinese. Frankly, I think being lumped together would have annoyed both women, or at least definitely Murasaki, though I do think both of them would also be pleased to know how well-regarded they are today. As with Murasaki Shikibu, Regard for Sei as a brilliant writer goes well beyond Japan's own borders. The earliest translations of the Pillow Book date from the early Meiji period. The earliest one I have found was done by a Dutchman, August Pfizmeier, in 1876. In English, both Ivan Morris and Arthur Whaley, two of the most famous of the first generation of Western academics on Japan, did translations. Many more have been done since. Parts of the Pillow Book have also been adapted into a variety of media in Japan, from illustrated woodblock versions in the Edo period to manga ones today, and the stories have been adapted abroad as well. There's apparently a 1996 film based very loosely on the Pillow Book that stars Ewan McGregor, which, interesting, and a BBC Radio 4 drama series as well, which actually sounds pretty cool. And that really is what I love about the Pillow Book and why I wanted to talk about it. Despite all the differences in culture and time and place between us and it, the humanness of the text really shines in a way that I find fantastically moving, in the same way that I love the margin doodles on medieval texts or obscene graffiti in ancient Rome. It's a reminder of just how much we have in common with those of us who came before, a reminder of, for worse, but in this case for the better, our shared humanity. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Brett Schofield and to Clara Fita for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at that's isaacmeyer.net. That's i s a a c m e y e r dot net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com/historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we will tackle the fascinating story of Japan's early involvement in what became the Vietnam War.